This is Lives, and I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. My guest today is artist Catherine Ferguson. In the show, Ferguson talks about her informal pathway into what has become for her a lifetime with an artistic practice. She talks about some of her particular exhibitions and pieces, such as work democratizing everyday objects, the installation in Barcelona, and the aesthetic design of the Opera Omaha production of Aida. Ferguson also talks about her fascination with alchemy and how, in exploring that artistically, she has also explored that for her own life. Alchemy is important to me. Of course, that is what artists are always doing. They're taking a blank canvas or a ball of string or yarn or sheet of metal and then manipulating and changing it into something that has significance or value that tells a story. Something that was just totally blank now is telling you something new. Catherine Ferguson is an artist whose work is featured in public and private collections across the region, including major Nebraska museums and at public venues. Ferguson is particularly well known for installations that are transcendent and transformative. Ferguson has also dedicated herself to benefiting the visual arts in the community, serving on numerous public bodies and nonprofit boards. Catherine Ferguson, welcome to Lives. Thank you, Stuart. When was that first moment that you said to yourself, I am an artist? I think um, that there's another question here, and that was, I remember quite vividly when I decided that I would continue to make art. I entered a competition back in the 70s when I was uh, using batik as my main medium. And I entered a contest, a calendar contest, no less. Um, And I said to myself, well, if I get accepted, then... I think I'll continue this. And if I don't, that's fine. And lo and behold, I did get accepted. So I went on from there. And that was before I had my first separate independent studio. I was still working in my kitchen. Later, I don't know when I finally accepted or said to myself, I am an artist. I think it's a something that I accept more and more, even at this um, stage of my life. I started there because I, I want to, as it were, venture with you, not in necessarily a chronological order, but in the ways that your art has developed, how you've engaged with interesting questions, how you've engaged with who you are through art. And so you talked about stage of life and stages of life. So perhaps we should at this point jump back a little bit then. What was the artistic context of your early life? What was your early childhood like? I had a lot of freedom to roam as a child. We lived in a neighborhood where there were still undeveloped fields and hills to climb and many alleys. For some reason, I was always attracted to alleys and what you could find in them. 
uh, I had a collection of shards of pottery. Uh, people had thrown out plates or, you know, broken cups. And the prize one, of course, would be the one that had a little bit of decoration still intact. For the fields, we spent a lot of time, by we, I mean, I, I grew up in a neighborhood where there were other children. Uh, my own brother was much older, so I was more or less an only child. But there were a group of us that roamed the hills. Uh, nearby was a hill called Mayflower Hill. In the spring, the Mayflowers, or Posk flowers, as some people call them, uh, were just prolific. And in the fall, the same hill would have a thicket of bittersweet that older children had already kind of carved out, tunneled through, so we could crawl through this thicket. And there were long grasses. They, they must have been native. It had never been tilled or, or used, probably because of the hilliness of it. Um, and in the winter, they'd take cardboard boxes, and we'd slide down these grasses. And if there was snow, that made it all the better. My understanding is that you were raised in Sioux City. That that's, that's home. right. Okay, so the the place you're describing is this this home that's in Sioux City, but it it borders on this untilled natural landscape. Yes, it did in a couple different directions. Uh, there was one place uh, that was more contained. It was like a city. It was like a block that had not been developed, but it had a stream running through it, which was very unusual for that neighborhood. Mm. Oh. So your family context was your mother, I think, was a teacher, and your father was a typewriter salesman. That's right. That's right. But his side of the family is pretty much where my artistic interest comes from. I think if he had been born a couple generations later, he would have pursued uh, advertising. He was creative. He liked uh, slogans and jingles. And when I would travel with him, uh, that was something playful that we did together. We, we'd make them up. And I had an aunt um, who was an accomplished uh, organist, We've only pieced together in the last maybe 10 years that almost all of my cousins and our children have some involvement in the arts. We have an actor, we have a drummer, we have several writers, we have uh, designers. Uh, several of us are, are involved in visual arts musicians. Um, we have at least two architects and two documentary filmmakers. So I'm really thinking it comes from that side of the family. Although my mother was quite creative in her decorating. So There's clearly something in the water in your family then that is highly creative in a variety of creative fields. I, I think so. And I guess you could say, too, that my grandfather on that side 
was a storyteller because he was a Methodist minister. And I have found uh, notebooks that he kept of his sermons. They're organized by topic. And the one that I happen to have, um, there were many, but that another cousin has, but the one I have is on the power of prayer. So it's been fun. At a family reunion, I did kind of a Chautauqua-type presentation where I personified my grandfather telling this story, one of his stories about the power of prayer. Does it feel, looking back over a lifetime, that maybe you didn't know it overtly then when you were younger, but that it was going to be inevitable that you were going to pursue a creative art, even though at the time it didn't seem obvious? At the time, it wasn't obvious at all. But I feel that now at this age, looking back, I feel that inevitability. When I was a child, the girl next door could draw horses. I wouldn't even have attempted at that time to draw a horse. So I was definitely not thinking about the arts. And in my high school, if you were college-bound, you didn't take certain courses like art or home ec or typing. But instead, you went and studied English and with a minor in journalism. In journalism. And worked for a while in uh, Washington, D.C. for the Office of Economic Opportunity doing a type of public relations work. However, on my lunch hours, I was, our offices were between the Phillips Gallery and the Corcoran. And I often spent my lunch hours up there going into the museums. And before that, I had uh, studied in Chicago for two years when I was a freshman and sophomore in college and spent many a weekend taking the L down to meander through the Art Institute of Chicago. That was my baptism. It sounds as if you're describing an informal, as it were, and not a linear route into art. So how have you gone about the process of teaching yourself or becoming, if not confident, willing to explore what you need to know and do in order to practice the craft of being an artist? It's been an advantage to me to not have formal, to have a degree in art because I didn't know what the rules were. I had no limitations. I don't think it would be an advantage for everybody, but it just happened to be, for me, an advantage of not having those restrictions. And I started off very comfortably with non-formal materials. I could get everything I needed to do the batiks and the fabric work at the grocery store. I could buy paraffin and I could buy writ dye and brushes. Gradually, that changed when I um, formed an affiliation with other artists at the old market, Craftsman's Guild. Everybody there, my fellow artists and craftsmen, 
had degrees in art, but they were very um, uh, encouraging of me. And to be honest, I never felt like I was inadequate because I didn't have the formal training. Maybe that was naive, but I knew I was interested and curious. My understanding is that it was the brainchild initially of Rishon Lau. Definitely. But you were surrounded in a space that was your first space outside of your home. So it really was a, a step into identifying as someone who pursues art. And you're surrounded by a variety of artists. Would, would you show yes. a little bit more about that story? We had just graduated uh, from the University of Nebraska, Omaha, uh, as an art major and uh, had an, a show in her home of her pots and what to sell. I don't know how I heard about that, but I went there and I, and I met Ray. Later, a few months later, she called me and she said, I'd like to start a craftsman's guild and I'd like to have one person from each discipline. You would be the fabric dye person. <laughs> And Mary Keister would be a weaver, and uh, Noreen Kristen was a jeweler. Gary Downing was a photographer. We had a, there was a candle maker, and then a little bit later, there were silk screeners. And Rhea, of course, had a studio with uh, her pottery wheels and clay. So we went to Greenberg Fruit Company. I can still visualize it. I mean, it's... Gosh, it's been almost 50 years ago. We went through it. They had not quite moved out. The building had been um, transformed for their business by building rooms, plywood rooms, boxes, really, inside every space with insulation so that they could refrigerate. And they had heavy locker doors on there. But the bones of the original bones of the building were still there. We were young, and we all started uh, tearing it out after the lease lease was signed with the Mercers. And uh, we did a lot of the physical work um, where La Bouvette is now. In the back, if you're familiar with it, there is a raised area where there are a few tables back there. That concrete floor came directly out into the middle of the windows in in front. So all of that concrete had to be jackhammered out. Now, we didn't do the the jackhammering, um, but I learned what a cat's paw is. And we were able to take down a lot of the wood walls. And our uh, spouses or friends and friends helped a lot. And then a man came along who became our financial sponsor. His name is Tom Davis. And he gave money to, you know, employ people to really redo the building for our purposes. And how did you flourish, given that this is your first external studio space and you're now surrounded, you've committed and you're now surrounded by this miscellany of artists. I absolutely loved it, to have my own space. And I was raising two boys at the time, and so I could 
totally mentally separate and physically have space for my work outside the house. So it was extremely important to me. What did you learn from the others? They all had a a terrific work ethic. They went into their studio. We all went into our studios and we worked. We didn't spend a lot of time. We became good friends, but we didn't spend a lot of time just sitting around drinking coffee. I learned that they respected me and what I was doing in spite of my not having the degrees that they had. That was very, that was important, important in my uh, determination and to go on. They were encouraging. And we had visibility because on the first floor was a gallery where La Bouvette is now became a gallery. So for the first time, I was putting my art out and getting reactions. It was an extremely important moment for me. I know you as an artist that I feel defies categorization because I'm aware of you as an artist working in the field, as you say, of fabric, but also in the field of drawing and print and paint too, especially in the field of installation, sculpture, and so the list goes on. A stage I'm forgetting stage design too. And so I want to get a sense of some of this breadth and also to explore the commonalities, but also some of the differences between these art forms that you're using and exploring. So I wonder if we could do that by talking through some particular work that you've done. I'm thinking about the Barcelona installation, perhaps Aida, um, and, and then maybe something about these everyday objects that you're creating these sculptures around. Since you've listed it this way, I'll start with the Barcelona installation because that is another important turning point for me after many, many years after the Craftsman's Guild. I was invited to do an installation. They were looking for something conceptual. The artists, there were four uh, people in Barcelona, an artist, an art historian, or one couple, an entrepreneur, and a cafe owner were the other couple. And they had rented space in the old Gothic quarter of Barcelona, a beautiful glass-fronted gallery. The entrepreneur grew up here in Nebraska, grew up in Broken Bow, Mike McCready. He was now living in Barcelona area. So he had come back to Nebraska and was looking for an artist exchange. The artist in the, of these four people wanted to have a show in Nebraska, and then in return, they would invite a Nebraska artist to come to Barcelona. So they looked at different people's works, and they decided that perhaps mine was the most conceptual, which uh, many European artists, but particularly this man, Enrique Maury, is very conceptual, much more than my work has ever even approached. So the installation uh, was scheduled, and I went for two months. The theme was movement. And in the first chamber, which I hand-painted on the floor, the galleries there, uh, I will say this, it was a little spooky because 
the galleries don't open until five. So I would go in the morning and they gave me a key and I would take the train into town and walk through a big park and then open the gallery and turn on the lights and go down into a, a very dark, unfinished area. Nearby, they had stopped construction on a new development because they had found relics from the Roman period. So, you know, I'm down there painting on the floor. I'm stamping. I took a little box of tools with me and bought paint when I was there. But one thing I had put in was uh, I had planned to do this mosaic pattern on the floor. And I used a piece of styrofoam and we, I stamped a labyrinth in black and white and gray tiles on the floor. Now, if you can picture, the walls were very just old and plastered, but they were aged and it was had an old atmosphere to it. So the idea was in the first chamber, you walked this mosaic labyrinth, and then you walked back out, and as you came out, there was a doorway into a second chamber. And in there, I had brought with me that I had made for another installation. I brought, I brought a red tent, and it was shaped like the entrance to a burial mound. You could even say a storm cellar. On our farm, we have an old storm cellar with this narrow entrance, and then it opens up into a big room. This was like that, but it was red. And on the back wall, I had batiked after many years of not doing that. Animals, animals from the earth mounds of Iowa, and I had sewn lights in around them so they looked like a sky of constellations. You sat on a bench outside. Inside was an identical little Spanish bench. And the idea was a mental projection onto the interior bench and then out into the starry sky. So in contrast to the physical journey on the of the labyrinth. It feels to me that with your installation work, and you've just described this astonishing piece in Barcelona, the participants' engagement with the piece seems to be essential. This idea that someone doesn't just view the work, they, they have to be an active participant with and within it. Is that something that you're intentional about, sort of pulling the user into an actual experience rather than some passive engagement? Definitely, Stuart. And before, when I was starting the installations, I consciously chose to study gardens, landscape architecture, to understand how you are moved through a garden, classical gardens. And then I was able to travel and I studied, I did quite a bit of studying and photography of gardens in Italy. China and Japan, those in particular, some English gardens, but they, they all have different intentions in how they move people through the space and 
by doing that, create an experience, an experience of being removed from your outside world into this space. You're changed, you're suspended for a while in a different mental and physical space, but mentally you're, you're moved. This is Lives, and I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Over the six years that Lives has been produced, a number of visual artists have been guests on the show, among them Bill Hoover, Mark Gilbert, Barber, Jodie Wood, Julia Wiest, Jeff Katerba, Sarah Rowe, Wally White, and more. You can hear the conversations with those artists, as well as a variety of authors, poets, and performative artists, by downloading the podcasts, which can be found at the website livesradioshow.com. Let's get back to my conversation with Catherine Ferguson. I'm curious how that Barcelona piece in particular and your installations generally try to connect something that might seem pretty every day also with what we might think of as, I don't know, sacred, spiritual? I definitely, in my installations, am trying to move people. I think this is what gardens do, do. When you cross that threshold, it becomes more of a meditative experience. Definitely the separation from all concerns outside of that space for a moment that you're suspended, which is an interesting word for me to use because I've also liked doing a lot of aerial work, both in my sculptures and in the installations. I'm thinking of a piece I did at the Joslin, which had all this suspended shale. And then out at Mona, I did a piece with suspended found objects that were all painted gold. Why don't we move to then uh, me inviting you, please, to talk about that aspect of your art that involves everyday objects? Ah, well, of course, that goes right back to my roaming alleys as a kid. (laughs) And using scraps of fabric to make things when I was young. Another area of research that I have taken on was about alchemy. And I think that's, of course, that is what artists are always doing. They're taking a blank canvas or a ball of string or yarn or sheet of metal and then manipulating and changing it into something that has significance or value that tells a story Something that was just totally blank now is telling you something new. You mentioned one of the pieces, the installation pieces, I think at Mona. Yes. That illustrates what you're sharing. Uh, Sometimes I, uh, let me back up here for a minute. Sometimes I have gone to Goodwill stores and, and found things. But in that piece, I wanted everything to be totally rejected. I mean, it was sort of a level below Goodwill store material. (laughs) And so there were friends who had rental properties and uh, tenants would move out and just abandon things. So they'd give them to me. 
again, I would drive down alleys and find a, you know, a broom or worn out broom sticking out of a garbage pail and I'd grab it. Um, everything had, had to be of, of that level, at that level of unusefulness. Then I found gold paint and I was able to buy it by the gallon, not by the gallon, but by the five gallons. And a uh, car painter here in town who was willing to work with me, we spray painted all of these objects gold. Some might be made of plastic and some might be made of silver. But when they were gold, uh, you couldn't tell the difference. When they had been camouflaged with the gold, um, democratized is what I called it, they they were all the same level. I'm thinking of my grandfather who claimed that the reason he left England was because he didn't like the caste system, the social levels. And I'm, I'm wondering, now that we're talking about this, if perhaps growing up in the United States, but then also knowing this story from my grandfather, in some way influenced me to do something like that, um, moving things from one. It, it's alchemy. It's taking the most base element, lead, and in my case, converting it to gold. But that's what they were attempting to do. As you look back on your life, do you see that the practice of being an artist, making the art you have made, has been its own form of alchemy on you? Have you transformed yourself? And in what ways? I'm not surprised you've with your question, yes, it's given me a lot more confidence. I was confident in certain areas, um, definitely. Academically, I was very competent. But to be an artist is a whole other area of, uh, to feel confident about being an artist, even if you've been formally trained, I think it's difficult. Uh, because of our society and what we associate with that. We kind of, we put them up on a pedestal, but we also, we don't, we act like, and maybe we don't understand art, but we don't accept it or we don't value it. I used to talk about the pioneers moving across the Platte River Trail and having to throw overboard as they went, a lot of their fine china or the things that they, you know, they were labeled superfluous. We can't take this and we can't take that. So I think it's part of our cultural heritage, especially perhaps in the Midwest, because of that history of having to pare things down to survive. I don't want to lose sight of Aida. That feels like a really interesting addition to the vast array of art that you have explored and made. Aida, of course, is an opera, and you are invited to create the stage scenery, the visual effects, as it were, the costumes. Would you share more about 
the process of taking on that project and, and what you were creatively trying to achieve. Joan Dessens was the director, the executive director of Opera Omaha at the time. And Stuart Robertson was the artistic director. It was Joan's idea to invite me as an artist from the community to do a, a new production of something. So she talked to Stuart about it and gave him images and materials on my work. He connected the work I had done with gold to his idea of doing Aida as the 50th anniversary of Opera Omaha's existence. And of course, the main story is they are the Egyptians and the Ethiopians were fighting over gold objects. So I, with great trepidation, I, I was very fearful of taking this on. But I thought that if I didn't, I'd probably regret it. So I jumped into it and I was introduced to Sam Halfridge, who was the director, the stage director, and the dramaturg. He was a young man, uh, the age of my sons. We worked beautifully together. We started with a design aesthetic that was simple that we hoped would be timeless. I went to New York and I did went to the Metropolitan Museum and I did a lot of research on colors um, that I hoped that were used that I could find in Egyptian artifacts. And while I was there, it became apparent to me. I don't know if I read it on um, an information plaque, but the story and the significance of the lotus. And I knew enough about the opera by then that it, it's really in two stages, and they call the second half of the opera the night. They associate it with night because they're down, it's nighttime, and they're along the Nile River. So the first two acts, I'm meandering here, but I'll get back to the significance of the lotus. The first two acts of Aida are about the power of the king. So the first two acts are all about the sun and gold. And the second two acts are more about emotions and the internal workings of the main characters. The water lily does the same thing. Actually, it's it comes up and then during the daytime in reaction to the sun, and then it gradually closes at night. And then it repeats this cycle of opening and closing. For the Egyptians, the significance was of life and death. And so I had my two colors. I had the gold of the first two acts, and I had blue at night. I had the sun for the first two acts, and I had the moonlight for the second, the male energy and the female energy. And the lotus theme just fit that. We were surprised that we couldn't find another Aida opera that hadn't used that as their motif. So that was the beginning of it. I went 
to other Aida productions, I listened and I listened and I listened <laughs> to the soundtrack. I was hoping by listening, just the architecture of the mu music would become embedded in the architecture of the set. The set, of course, was easier for me to do because of my installation. Costumes were a whole new thing. I drew and I consulted with uh, Melissa Bruning, Les Bruning's daughter, who's a costume designer for television and movies, primarily, in Los Angeles. And um, she helped me with a lot of the renderings of how to portray these costumes. I went to New York and I went to the fashion industry neighborhoods where there are fabric stores that sell only to the industry. So I picked up a lot of samples of fabric. And the most amazing thing about this experience was I was working with a team and that gave me a feeling of safety. So I not only had Sam, I had Robert Weisel, who is a very well-known lighting designer from New York. Of course, Stuart could be counted on in the, all the Omaha, Opera Omaha office people. Whatever I needed, they were there to help me. It's the only time that I've gone to an opening of my work where I was not just totally freaked out or nervous because I knew this had been a team effort. Why are you nervous uh, or freaked out when you go to an opening of one of your shows or exhibitions? That's a good question. I guess there's always that underlying insecurity of how people are going to react to your work. And for me, I often change my work so people see some, are going to be seeing something new usually. I should probably think about that, about why I am nervous about it, because the history has been I often get very nice reactions to my work at, at openings. You've shared with me the importance of mentors or affirmations that have occurred in your very successful, long artistic career, but how important they've been and how timely. I wonder if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about the importance of those affirmations. The very first affirmation that confirmed that I was on a right track came from a curator. Her name's Holly Day. She was a curator at the Joslyn Art Museum, and she came for a studio visit. She was the first curator, art historian, to visit my studio to talk about the work. I knew that what I felt about the work and where I felt my strengths were, what was beautiful about Holly's visit was that what she pointed out and as strengths were exactly what I knew or had been feeling. So it was a confirmation to me that I could judge my own work. It's very, very important. I'd like to go back to the Barcelona. There was, again, 
just a general acceptance of the work as if, of course, we're going to be interested in this work. Uh, we see a lot of art and uh, we understand it and we accept it. Uh, there was no hesitation or fear of art that sometimes I run into here where people are fearful of going into a gallery that they might say the wrong thing to the artist or to the gallery owner, or they might not have anything to say, uh, fearful of their own reactions and fearful of expressing them. So that was confirming in a way, too, of just do it. Don't be uh, uncomfortable about using unusual materials or whatever you want to do. Go ahead with it. I feel like you're a very inspirational uh, local figure and a very public local figure, too, in the art world and beyond that. Given what you've just shared, what do you say to aspiring artists who you see emerging into their careers now that you have traveled successfully uh, on yours? Well, there's that very cliched expression of just show up. I think that's important. Um, do the work and show the work. You're going to be uncomfortable and fearful, uh, but be brave. Try to get reactions from people who have seen a lot of work and who can react honestly to your work and help you identify your strengths if you probably already know them, but they can confirm what you know to be your strengths. We've talked a little bit about the Barcelona installation, talked a little bit about some of the everyday objects art that you've been doing, talked about AIDA, and, and you shared a little bit about with me offline some of the wire pieces that you've continually, continually mm -hmm. explored. I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about what is occupying you now? creatively what's what's sparking your imagination what is it that you feel the need to keep tinkering with or exploring so w what are you up to now i'm up to two things i'm up to making a body of larger outdoor sculpture pieces to install on a piece of land that our family bought so i'd be making those for myself and uh, people who visit us, um, but I and I have very high um, criteria for myself because I'm going to have to live with it, and because I guess I'm thinking, I don't know how many more decades of working I have in me, so I want these pieces to really express me, not me, but I want them, I just, I want them to be good. My family's very encouraging of my doing this. Um, the other thing that, and I recently, they have helped me recently convert a little stable into a workspace there. I am continuing to do these wire pieces because they are like drawings. They're wire with nodules. And every time I do them, they 
they turn out differently. I think there's tremendous potential there if I'm willing to stick with it and pursue it. They have dimension, they have volume, but they are at this point wall pieces. And I've attempted to, you know, several years ago, in fact, the first one, it was a free hanging figure of a large woman. It was a large sculpture of a large woman. So I'm hoping to go even more three-dimensional with them, perhaps introducing color. At one point several years ago, I wrapped some of them with synthetic hair in bright blues and reds. And I don't know whether that would be the direction I would go. Possibly, probably not. The one thing we haven't talked about is my exhibition of hair, which (laughs) by the look on your face, I know that this is a surprise, but it was um, a show that I did at the Garden of the Zodiac. So um, back to the wire, they they are three-dimensional in-space drawings. They hold my interest still. What is it about them that is holding your interest? I think the first appealing thing about them is that I'm using my hands for quite a few years. I would use my hands to do drawings and some maquettes, but the actual fabrication of my pieces were because of their scale and because they were outside, they had to be welded by professionals. Foundry work was necessary in order to create them. So the flexibility of changing your mind while you're working on it was after the initial design, then that creativity stopped for the fabrication part. With the wire pieces, I have no idea when I get that ball of wire out and I start manipulating it um, where it's going. I create a gridded fabric with it initially, and then I manipulate it into different shapes. I change it, but it's all mystery until the very end. You kindly gave me a copy of the brochure for the installation in Barcelona. And inside the brochure, there are two quotes. One of them is from T.S. Eliot, and the quote is, We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And I want to ask how that feels to you now. How do you think about yourself in the context of that quote? I think as we were just talking about the hands-on and the uh, letting things evolve is how I started with my fabric work. Uh, Whether it's tie-dye or batik, you don't know until you take those strings off or you the wax is crackled and you remove the wax what, what you have. So there's a lot of trust. I think that's why this wire work that I'm doing today 
is the same thing. That is the most rewarding way to work is just to jump in and start and follow the muse. But it's just what leads to the next thing. That's the most pleasurable work. That could apply to your art. It feels like you're describing your life. Oh, okay. <laughs> you could just jump in. Yes. And see where it takes you. I think you're absolutely right. I had no idea uh, or no aspiration, no dream really of becoming an artist. But once I started with the process and the materials, I liked it so much I kept coming back to it. It's probably why I've explored so many materials. It's like starting over again, learning about their properties and learning how I can uh, interact with them if I can really use them uh, to make something new and different that I enjoy and that maybe other people will enjoy too. And, you know, where it'll take me. Like, I never... I just sort of stumbled onto the idea of researching gardens and and also with alchemy. It, it kind of popped up, uh, and I thought, oh, this is something I need to explore. Uh, it's true. That's the way I work. I I get interested in something, and I I follow it, and it's new. And once again, I'm beginning all over, and trying to learn about it and trying to use it to express some storytelling. My guest today has been artist Catherine Ferguson. Catherine, it's been a delight just to sit here with you. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Stuart. That was fun. Stuart, that was really fun. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. Listen out for more compelling conversations in the coming weeks, including Joanna LaFleur Ejiki, the Executive Director of the Malcolm X Memorial Foundation. I'll talk with LaFleur Ajiki about the lasting legacy and relevance of Malcolm X and his recent induction into the Nebraska Hall of Fame. Also coming soon is my conversation with Leadership Omaha's recipient of the 2022 Distinguished Alumni Award, Christian Gray, who is the Executive Director of In Common Community Development. We talk about the human right to housing, the nature of the American dream, and what drives Gray's passion for community development. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.